Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellero. And this week, my guest is Bob Kendler from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. This is going to be really cool. For the listeners, uh, Bob Gendler is an IT specialist in the Apple world, a Jamf guru, and a wizard of Mac management. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Information Technology from the Rochester Institute of Technology. And now he is part of the Mac management team at NIST in Washington, where he's part of a group that launched the macOS Security Compliance Project. And that's the focus of the show, and we'll get to that in part two. Um, but first, I want to ask you about your career and introduce you a little bit to the listeners. So like most of us, you started out with an Apple II, I hear. How did that mm-hmm. happen? Yeah, so so uh, I can remember, I don't know, maybe it was like second grade, maybe it was even kindergarten, my, my dad bringing home an Apple II GS and, uh, and having stacks of floppy disks and just playing, you know, whatever game or doing creating content cartoons whatever things that there were to do with an apple 2gs back then mostly games right because 2gs was a graphics um monster at the time with uh yeah high-res games i think a whole eight or 16 colors or something (laughs) super mario brothers right yeah so that got you started and then later you moved on to uh your first Mac was what? Yeah, so my first Mac, um, actually, my, my dad got it uh, sort of for me, but for us, uh, for my bar mitzvah, for, uh, it was a Power Mac 6100 with, the, and I always have to specify with the DOS compatibility card because that was such a special, unique thing to some of those models at that time. Um, and, and that's really what probably laid the groundwork and, and really got me started on this track that I am today. Did the DOS compatibility card kind of ease you into a cross-platform frame of mind, or were you just kind of a Mac nutcase from the get-go? Mostly pretty much a Mac nutcase from the get-go, but like, (laughs) you know, at that time, at that age, 13, 14, you want to play games, Warcraft was probably a a thing, maybe Starcraft was starting to come along a few years later, like uh, a lot of the games were DOS games. Well, I think with the Power Mac 6100, you bypassed a lot of the performer nonsense. Yep, 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 completely. Yeah, straight to the first Power PC. So this was a lifelong inspiration and it led you into your uh, undergraduate studies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we went from there and, and, and like, I remember even in high school, like, uh, I think that, that Apple had started broadcasting the keynotes uh, with Steve Jobs, or, or they would put them up to be watched later on in QuickTime, and watching them and and being uh, just glued to everything and and being there with the iMac, you know, all that insanity blowing up, and and the um, when there were no Apple stores and it was a store within a store in CompUSA's and oh, and visit. Yeah, and visiting a CompUSA, making it like a thing, like a, a like this is a special occasion. We're going to get to go see an Apple store within this store, <laughs> and uh, and so so that yeah that led me uh, to to RIT where I, I uh, graduated uh, or I went to school for information technology. And at RIT, we actually had a Mac users group um, that I helped kind of uh, breathe some life in and and uh, and help. Uh, help it flourish for a few years. It was called MacRit. 
and uh, yeah, that that led us to uh, to to finding a job down the road. What does one study as an information technology specialist at the bachelor's degree level? Um, so at that time, it was we we you could pick your different um, focuses, and mine was system administration. So I remember doing. Uh, stuff with some Linux administration and some Windows administration, um, a little bit of networking. You learned the uh, OSI model and the different layers of, of the networking and, oh, uh, nice. and and just like some real basic kind of level stuff and and uh, the beginnings of scriptings. You, you you started learning some how to do a little bit of Bash script. Um, uh, there was also some other higher level scripting, like a little, I learned some PHP in, in college. Uh, so it was like a taste of a lot of things. Can I ask you what year was this was for the four years? Uh, so I graduated college in 2005. So anywhere from 2000 to 2005, we're talking. Okay. So you were there at the very beginning of Mac OS 10 and got introduced to yeah. Unix. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. We, uh, I remember, um, I had a Power Mac G3, the beige tower, and, and it was a, a, maybe not even an officially supported model. I think maybe I had to like mess with something and, and all of us ran down to the, to the mail center to get our, uh, Mac OS 10.0 CDs that showed up that day. And, and, oh, uh, then like code name, yeah, spent all night futzing with the computer, trying to get it to boot, uh, on this uh, unsupported system. On those days, uh, it was yeah. a real trick to get uh, Cheetah installed oh. properly on your Power yeah. Mac. Yeah, it was no yeah, easy task. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it was like supposed to be just for power for G4 machines and higher, maybe at that point. Mm. Maybe the G3 wasn't supported. And it, anyways, that 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 beige G3 tower was amazing. It was so like upgradable. I had to you know replace video cards. I think I had upgraded the processor. Stuff you can't even imagine doing nowadays with with machines. I think that was the last computer I added memory to. You could snap off the metal <laughs> casing and get in there and replace the GPU and replace the uh, memory. Yeah, yep. at a whopping two hundred and fifty six megabytes of RAM. I was in heaven. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do right out of college with that glorious degree? So right out of college, I actually worked for a nonprofit. Uh, in in I got a job in Washington D.C. at a nonprofit, and uh, uh, I was their IT manager. Um, and I actually found it on the job on an old Apple mailing list um, that doesn't exist anymore. It just was one of those mailing lists where you know people posted jobs every so often and and questions and you know what forum what the Jamf Nation forum basically came became today. Uh, oh. But I found a job uh, on there, and and uh, yeah, ended up moving to Washington D.C. and becoming the IT manager at this uh, international nonprofit. So system administration was right up your alley, and that's something you got really good at. <laughs> yep, yep. A lot of people straight out of college, you know, have that like level one, um, maybe tech support kind of job. But I was straight to, uh, all right, I'm managing a network and and all the pieces to it. Um, I can see the origins of this. Yeah. And there it was uh, a hybrid. It was, it was like 50, 50, 50% Mac, 50% windows. Um, So it was, it was a good uh, taste into things. What eventually landed uh, you the job at NIST? So I 
after the nonprofit, I worked at a uh, 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 at a private school in the DC area, and then um, just felt it. I helped uh, build their one to one program, so all students got a MacBook Air, um, and I kind of helped launch that program. and it, And this baby I had built, uh, you know, it, it was able to be sustained on its own. Sort of the cycle had it was it had just become a cycle of how to do things, and so I felt it was time to sort of move on to the next adventure and, and saw this job published, applied. Uh, I knew Jason, um, Blake, uh, from, uh, who, who's my coworker on the team, um, from just around the area. Uh, I knew actually my manager, uh, from, from around the area. So it was a really good fit and, and, um, it, you know, what was the job you applied for? For what I have now, the uh, IT security position on the on, uh, specialist uh, uh, on the Mac management team at NIST. All right, cool. Well, that kind of sets the stage for the what comes in the second half of the show. This project that you're involved in is very interesting to me, and I think it's going to be interesting to the listeners. But uh, we're going to have to defer to the second half of the show. Thanks for the introduction, and uh, we're going to take a commercial break right now. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. I'm chatting with Bob Gendler. Stay tuned. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Bob Gendler from NIST in Washington, D.C. So now, on to the macOS Security Compliance Project. A little birdie on my shoulder told me about this about three or three weeks ago, and I was very intrigued. But it's kind of technical, so let's kind of walk through it and kind of explain it to the listeners who will be, I think, very interested what was the basic security problem you faced? Oh, uh, the basic security problem that everybody, every organization seems to, to face is that Apple releases a system, <clears throat> you know, September, uh, October timeframe, and some agencies, some organizations have to wait upwards of a year, maybe even longer, until they're allowed to implement that system. Uh, uh, until there's a uh, baseline release from a, an official organization such as like DISA the, from DOD or CIS, 
or even NIST, uh, other branches of, of NIST release baselines. And so what we wanted to do is, is you know, as, as you and, and a lot of your listeners probably know, you can't downgrade the system that ships on some systems. So uh, if it's shipped with Catalina, you're, you're stuck with Catalina, but maybe you, you can't officially support Catalina because there's no baseline. So every agency internally had to basically do this and, and write up, um, create uh, uh, their security configurations for that system. Um, and so all of these different agencies, every different organization out there had to go and, and do this. And so we, we sort of thought that this would be, um, let's, let's combine all of us. So then we also know we're going to cover all of the different settings properly. Um, maybe at each group that contributes, will be able to give something to it, uh, that the others didn't know. And then also we just have a, uh, a clear, concise voice to Apple even on, this is how machines are secured. You know, can we do this better? Can we do this worse? Whatever. Uh, you know, that's to put sort a of been the project. Hand, to put a mental handle on this, uh, give me an example or two of the kind of security setting one might invoke in order to meet some security standard? Uh, so a big one is, is things like air, disabling AirDrop. Um, AirDrop is uh, great on personal Macs. I use it all the time, like all the time, all the time. But on a company machine, there's no real easy way to trace where the if the file came from AirDrop, uh, where it came from, who it came from, things like that, or what went off of the system via AirDrop. Uh, so it, the, disabling that all, you know, prevents that. It also prevents from being able to copy to non-company uh, uh, machines, uh, personal-owned machines. And so that, that would be an example of one that Let me um, ask you about this. Places. Based on your experience, Apple's had two decades now with macOS 10, macOS <laughs> When they implement these things like AirDrop, are they intentionally not mindful of the auditability of things like AirDrop, and so it has to get dropped from security machines, or is it, is it that they just figure that it's such a small percentage of their audience that they don't have to worry about security protocols for a new service like AirDrop, or what? What is Apple thinking along these lines? Are they helpful with you, or do they? Do they sometimes feel yeah. like they're just going after the consumer and yeah. the rest be darned? You know, they definitely aim for ease of use. And and I, I think that, um, generally speaking, they provide a control for something like AirDrop to disable it at an enterprise level. So a lot of things like that, um, uh, the, the feature may be uh, created for the, the general user, for, for uh, the general consumer, but they give the enterprise the ability to disable it. Um, I just think that there are so many teams at Apple um, that it's easy for teams to over uh, to not see like what, um, what another one or the other is doing uh, or, or, or the needs of one or the other teams. So there's no security guru writing shotgun on the Mac OS that when somebody proposes a feature that the security honcho says, nope, we can't do that. And that doesn't happen. Uh, who knows? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know their teams uh, well enough to, to say one way or the other. You know, I, I would hope that they always uh, keep enterprise and, and government and regulated industry in mind when they implement new features. But uh, we'll see. We, you know, Big Sur introduces a couple that are great for regulated industry, like the signed um, uh, uh, encrypted uh, 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 system volume. Um, that's that's a great feature for enterprise. We know that yeah. like the system is what it's supposed to be. Um, I, the general consumer doesn't really care about that. So I think it's a little bit of both at times. Okay, so different organizations have different security requirements. And in the old days, you just have to kind of like munch through the GUI and try to figure out how to lock down your system and comply with your organization's security guidelines. And that was probably a painful, lengthy, manual process. So what is your project? Uh, how is your project designed to help with that? project is uh, designed so that this could be hopefully done in mostly an automated fashion, um, be it through scripts or uh, configuration profiles. These are ways uh, that these settings can be done in, in, in a uh, you know, behind-the-scenes sort of thing. I can't think of any settings we have that uh, may not uh, in, that may be a, uh, you may have to do through the GUI. Uh, so I think there's a certain amount of mapping involved here. So your organization or some organization says we need to have such and such and such configured, and they go to this scripting mechanism that you supply, and the script throws all these terminal line switches. Is that how it works? And then there's an uh, affirmation process that says, okay, the system is configured the way you want it. Yeah, so, so what we, we have is a lot of places, that, um, a lot of groups may have an auditor, and, and the auditor is you know, following a checklist. Do you meet these uh, requirements? And a lot of the time, the requirements map back to a NIST document called the NIST 853. Um, and the NIST 853 is what a lot of compliance for frameworks are, are built on on top of and build off of. Um, and so uh, what all of our, our rules files have in, within them is here's the setting and here's what NIST 853 control it maps to, as well as some other um, control uh, uh, frameworks like that. Uh, and so you know that you've met, you know, uh, what a AU seven from NIST eight hundred fifty three, you know, random control because you've done this and um, you could set it, you know, by just looking at what the rule is and running that command, or you could build out uh, your own custom baseline from our, uh, our our project and build your set of settings that are required. Cool. When was the macOS security compliance project started? It's pretty new, isn't it? We've been working on it for since last uh, uh, August, but it, but it went public in early June. What was uh, the most difficult part of the project? Getting it public uh, because we needed to get it to a point where uh, it was good uh, and and um, just cleaning up things uh, and and working through a lot of the. Uh, things that come with basically sort of making a, a publication, uh, in a sense, um, you know, 
we are, I am from NIST and then, and, uh, uh, there's a very high standard of, of things that are, are, you know, have the NIST stamp on them. So we had to make sure that we meet those sort of standards before we could get it public. Now I want to clarify something. There's two ways to do this. Correct me if I'm wrong. One is to run your software that throws the switches and audit and audit and shows an auditability to comply with uh, a certain security standard. Another mechanism is to use an MDM, a mobile device manager like Jamf, to throw those settings. Is that right? Yeah, uh, sort of both in a sense. Yeah. Um, so. Some of the rule files generate uh, can be used to generate uh, uh, configuration profiles, mobile config files, and so you could put those into Jamf very easily. Literally, just upload them straight, um, and and you know push them down to your machines and lock those settings that are configuration profiles. The ones that are uh, scripts may take a little bit more to put them into, say, Jamf, but we have built out some some scripts in here which are more meant to sort of be here are examples of how it could be used you don't have to use the scripts that we provide to generate uh your own content your own configuration profiles but uh they're sort of the scripts that we we provide are sort of there to show you how you could be using it to ingest and create uh your guide or create your uh, settings files or, or your configuration profiles. Well, that's interesting um, because I, I saw in the documentation in the wiki, I think that it said that maybe I saw it there that Apple thinks that uh, um, MDM like Jamf is the way this should happen. And if there's additional scripts that need to be run, isn't that a problem? Uh, so Apple, so MDM is supposed to be the uh, best authoritative sort of source of, uh, of settings, but not everything is able to be set through MDM. And so uh, that's been a little bit of, of the project, uh, uh, of, a, of a sort of side goal of the project is, is pushing Apple to get more um, configuration profile keys. So if there are settings within this that the listeners are listening to, and you see that they are scripts, file some feedback to Apple that this should be able to be configured with a configuration profile because, you know, out of 150 rules, maybe 60 are configuration profiles. Um, it's, it's not, you know, that high of a percentage. Oh, okay. I understand now. So one of the things I forgot to ask you was about, tell me about the other team members on this project and their affiliations. That's interesting too. Yeah. So, uh, Jason Blake is is uh, on this project. He's also from NIST. He's he's contributed to the to the project. We have Alan Goldberg from NASA. Um, we have Dan Brojetsky from uh, DoD DISA uh, Joint Service uh, Provider uh, Group. Um, we have uh, uh, a group. We have people from Los Alamos Labs. Um, how did you corral them? Did you kind of reach out to friends or other colleagues in security organizations that you thought would be interested or people you knew already? How did you kind of corral them into this project? Actually, uh, we have, uh, I've referred to him as our, um, I'm blanking on the, the person. Um, um, anyways, we've been brought together by somebody, uh, uh, 
so I don't know if if uh, if our man Jamie is is wants to be mentioned, but we're we're gonna thank him for for connecting the dots of uh, all of us. Okay, let's just leave it the first name <laughs> on that. Okay. I yes. Gotcha. <laughs> now I understand what's going on. Okay. All right. Uh, so tell me about these. He's sort of our Nick Fury, bringing the Avengers together. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Very cool. Um, so tell me about the uh, potential audience for this kind of project. So our audience, uh, first and foremost, is probably government uh, agencies, uh, because we'll be able to generate baselines, hopefully, a lot quicker than uh, you know, almost a year after release, um, we are aiming to release baselines pretty soon after, uh, the release of the operating systems. And, and I know that federal government, um, they are, uh, generally some agencies are generally very hesitant to, uh, uh, implement new systems if there is no baseline. So they're probably the, the number one, they, Regulated industries such as banking and, uh, and hospitals and whoever you know in regulated industry, they're probably our, our number two, um, just because they also have to follow you know very strict guidelines of security. Um, and and beyond that, uh, I would say the general public is probably uh, maybe our, our number three because security isn't something that you can totally ignore. Uh, it's it's not like it just goes away and you don't have to worry. Like everybody should, you know, consider some settings on their machines to secure them. And so, even if if it's just uh, a general person who has no connection or affiliate to any of these type of organizations, they should probably take a look at it and see how to secure their machines within their uh, company or even at home a little bit. Yeah, like one uh, organization I can think of is universities and colleges who want to configure their machines for the professors and make sure they're secure. Just what exactly. comes to mind, yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're kind of running out of time a little bit. I, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Before the show started, the other day, we talked about uh, the USGCB. Can you talk about that? So the USGCB is the United States government uh, baseline. Uh uh, and uh, and so USGCB is uh, basically our our end goal, hope, <laughs> dreams that we are reaching for. Um, technically, if you follow all the different laws and regulations that uh, that are out there, uh, if a baseline does not exist on the USGCB site, that platform then then the platform is not supported. So um, there are currently Windows Seven. Um, baselines, uh, a version of an older version of Red Hat Linux baseline on there, but there is zero Mac OS baselines. So I, I've heard through the grapevine that certain agencies would love to deploy Macs, but because there is no baseline on the USGCB site, they can't. And so that is our end result. Hopeful goal is to make it to the USGCB site. Um, it has required us to Man, uh, begin manufacturing uh, content in this format called SCAP, uh, uh, which I've, I've learned this uh, XML format uh, oval, which which is uh, used for basically doing a lot of the similar checks that we're doing, but uh, in a very specific way. Um, and so uh, we we've created the content. Uh, we just need to clean up some things and hopefully get it submitted through the NIST checklist program, 
And then the next step is hopefully getting to that USGCB. Great. Now, all you government employees who've been trying to get a Catalina Mac on your desktop, understand a little bit better about maybe some of the resistance your IT manager may have. So hopefully we can get this USGCB done and the Mac will be qualified and everything will be great. Very cool. Very cool. Well, it's time to kind of wrap up the show. I tried to ask you a sequence of questions that help, hope that I thought would hopefully kind of lay out the project and its core motivation and its process and uh, who it appeals to. Uh, do you have any closing remarks you want to make about uh, the project? So many people that have been helpful in getting this going and getting it public and, and getting us step-by-step step along the way. You know, obviously the, the three or four of us, myself, Dan, Projetsky, Alan, uh, Jason Blake, Blair Heiserman, Josh Glemza, uh, Elise Anderson, uh, 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 all these different people, even people from other uh, companies such as, such as uh, um, uh, uh, Gabriel Radford from, from Red Hat, like all these people have helped us along the way in some way. So they, they, uh, yeah, they all need to be thanked, basically. Cool, cool. Well, one last question. Uh, tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish to learn more about this project. Um, on the uh, NIST, U.S. NIST Gov GitHub. Uh, so it's github.com slash U.S. NIST Gov slash macOS underscore the security. That's a, that's a mouthful. So, But that the, the macOS security compliance project GitHub is probably the best way. Please submit issues. Please submit pull requests. You know, th this is the best way to uh, help us, help you, help us. <laughs> and I'll make sure that link is in the show notes. Okay, Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the show and explaining the macOS security compliance project. It's been great. Thanks for joining me. For having me. Take care. Folks, you've been listening to John Marchalero and Bob Gendler on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>